Welcome to our podcast today on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. We are so pleased today to be joined by Tariq and Nana Karimboy of Karimboy Design, Karimboy and Associates. Uh, you can find them at karimboy.net, a fantastic firm that they have led by Tariq Karimboy, and he does some designs that just blow my mind. It's helpful that He's married to my first cousin. That helps a little bit in securing this interview here today on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. So first of all, welcome to Tariq and Nana Karimboy. Our pleasure to have you today on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. Thank you, Mehul. We are pleased to be here. Yeah, Mehul, thank you so much. You know, I was just thinking as I prepared for this, I was waiting for them to come on. And, and one thing that really strikes me, and we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later, but I remember when I went to India on a business trip, and I happened to be in New Delhi, and Tariq had told me about a project that he had there. And you know, sometimes people say, hey, why don't you stop by if you ever get time? Well, I just, we had an extra 45 minutes and it was very tight schedule before our airplane. I was with a customer and a manufacturer and we went to his building there in McKinsey and Company right outside New Delhi. I'll never forget it. I walked in and there was like a security guard. There was a reception. They were all panicked and they were like, who is this? Who's walking in this firm? And as soon as I said, well, my first cousin designed this place, they let me walk right through the whole place. I want to start with that anyway. Tariq, tell me about that project. I was just looking at that on karimboid.net and that thing is fantastic. How did you come up with that design and, and the genesis of that project? That's a very good question. Now, when you design, you know, you come up with a lot of ideas, a lot of conceptual sketches. We call it schematic. And these are all empathic ideas. Now, the, now, you look at the client, each one has its own criteria. For instance, when I designed Betsy Johnson, it was a completely different set of criteria to say a Naeem Khan. And then a McKinsey is a completely different clientele. Now, each one is contrary to the other in terms of their feeling, in terms of their looks. Now, in essence, McKinsey is very secretive. And what they said is they wanted a space to be designed where nobody knows what the other person's life is about, where one consultant basically doesn't know what the other consultant is doing or where what one sec secretary for that consultant is only handling his projects here. Yeah. So the way it's designed is you come into a pavilion and that pavilion is on a lotus pond. I thought of a lotus pond because it was, it was like the golden temple. The golden temple symbol, uh, symbolizes beautiful Indian architecture. So I thought that let's have this giant reception area floating on a lotus pond. And from there, you enter the campus, basically. And the campus has a garden in the center. So every consultant faces a garden. And this garden was really an abstraction of the Mughal garden. And interestingly enough, this Mughal garden, which was about like, say, an acre, had about 200 cars parked under it. And it had, a lot, uh, it had a little pond in the center, which faced actually the consultant's offices. So each consultant had a glimpse of the garden. 
That's great. And I, I just, more than just the design and the project, I was just struck. And that's how I wanted, why I started with this at the last minute was how open they were to you. I mean, you did one project there. So more than the, you know, I built this garden, this and that, it was just the fact what they thought of you. That was really something I'll never forget. And Nana, thinking about you, I'm working here on this podcast and, and coming up with writing some anecdotes and things for small business horsepower. And I remember just reading your book you did on Gandhi and having it on my bookshelf. Uh, I just went one day and there it was and and uh, Indira Gandhi and then uh, other books you've done. Tell me a little bit about the inspiration for that book, for example. So I basically always wanted to be a writer and uh, write a novel. And my second, so I have wear two hats. One is as a writer and the other is as the business person uh, that is partner to Tariq because he concentrates on the creative and I concentrate on my business person genes coming through and just trying to keep the office running. Now, the books allowed me a creative escape. I've always written Indira Gandhi. The book uh, was written actually just after she died and uh, it was commissioned. I was commissioned by a publishing house for which at that time I was writing another book and when Indira Gandhi died they said well you murdered summarily. I was in India at that time and I got a fax in those days of course there were fax. I don't know how they found the fax number of my father's office and they said please write a book on Indira Gandhi within a month and I did. Within a month? Or two. I was just short while they wanted to be the first to come out with it but the good thing at that time was that there was so much information about her coming out in every way because she, you know, had just died. So her past, her interviews, her this. So it was actually a great time to write it because it was all around me. That's how I wrote Ira Gandhi. And the novel, which is called Miss Timmins School for Girls uh, and was published in 2011 by Harper, that was my own, because publishing and uh, fiction and nonfiction are very different parts in publishing and usually have different agents and publishing houses. Uh, not always, but in this case, I actually, just wrote it cold and then sent it out to see if I could get it published. It was a labor of love. That is great. I read that book too. That had a lot to do with where you went to boarding school and grew up and uh, some nice stories added around there. Uh, I don't know if all of them were true, but uh, <laughs> that was so much fun. No, it's a murder mystery. It's not meant to be. It's fiction, Mayhood. It's fiction. Tariq, let me ask you, when did you know in your life that you had that knack for design and architecture and how did you first get into that? Well, well, you know, I'm a strong believer in the American educational system. Now, what happened is after I went to boarding school, I went to Bombay to go to college. Now, like everybody else. And, and then I have an aunt who was a doctor who, in New York City who said, Tariq, I want you to come to New York to do whatever you want in life. So I said, wow, the sun's shining. I got on the first plane and I went to Pratt to be an artist. I found I couldn't paint, but I could draw. I found that I could sculpt, but I couldn't paint. So I decided to go into three-dimensional design. So what was a natural was actually industrial design, which was actually form and space that I loved. And it's interesting. The beauty of, of an American education is that it teaches you to sense and feel the world around you. And it taught me to fall in love with a field that I knew nothing about. And then I decided, you know, I love form and space. 
So I got my Bachelor's of Fine Arts from Pratt. And then I went on to go to Cornell, where I learned about interiors and I learned, I did some form and space in terms of sculpture. And the beauty is that I was very bad at my structural class in architecture at Cornell. However, my education at Cornell was free. And then I came to New York and I got my master's of architecture. So my, my vision of my world grew larger and larger and larger. That's great. And what we're talking about leads me to this next question is that you guys are both kings and queens of so many attractive projects. Sculpture, we'll get into stone, design, writing books, fiction, nonfiction. But how do you separate the thirst and the love to do things you like versus the aspect of profitability? Because if you're in small business, you have to stay profitable. And sometimes I see like, oh, yeah, I love the passion for this. I feel it. But how do you measure that versus whether it's going to be profitable? Naina, let me start with you on that. I have to say the first and oldest company is the architecture and design firm, right? Which is a more viable way of earning a living because there's a need versus sculpture. or uh, And so that was what was started in 1984. And as the clients came, uh, it's all word of mouth. So we kind of have a client base over years generate where we do one, it's the son and the father and everything. But the Sana Stone, which is our stone project, happened because Tariq has always had this love of stone and hand carving. And he basically found that people were asking for that, his clients. And then he thought, well, why not start a separate firm? And we named after our daughter, Sana. And the sort of impetus is, of course, and what Tariq does is he does it for architects. It sells mainly to architects and designers. It's what we call modern de- design in stone. And it's also to save the ancient craft of hand carving. Uh, in India, hand carving stone goes back to the days of the temples, to the days of Mughal architecture. And it's dying because, you know, there's a lot of machine work and machine work doesn't do it in the same way. Now in China, nobody does hand carving. So India seems to be one of the last hand carving resorts. And there's things you cannot do, which you only do in hand carving. And we've been doing that. Now profitability, as you say, with Sana Stone, um, it comes and goes. And then uh, actually sculpture was started by Tariq just as a love. And then we found that clients were saying like, can we get this? Can we get this? They were buying it. And there's one, when he donated it at a Pratham charity, people were bidding on it. So then he realized that maybe there is a business. So that's how it started. And it's been very actually surprised us at how profitable it has been and how successful in the three years. So has that sculpture been more profitable than Sanna Stone? And then were you surprised that the sculpture was more profitable. Yes, because also in sculpture, there is no, uh, I mean, it's him doing his sculpture, having it produced. So there's, we don't need employees. You don't need, uh, uh, you know, and also your, you, your, the markup is much higher because it's a work of art. One of the things I want to ask you guys both is that, especially for small business, cash flow is such a important issue and waiting for that payment, especially when you're in construction and design, you finish a project, now you're waiting for payment. I'm sure you've seen times where it gets delayed, especially in a bad economy, like for example, right now with this COVID-19 crisis. Did that push you more to go to things like sculpture and stone where you may get a, a return on your work 
fairly, a little bit more quickly, I should say? Or was that just the love of sculpture and stone that guided you? Was there a business aspect to it? Well, you know, I'd like to club your two questions together because I think your first question was very relevant. Now, we basically do not follow the current. We do what we do. And we don't know where we're going. Like small guys, we don't know where we're going. We're on a bicycle, yes? And then what we do is there's no plan, Mehul. There really is no plan. We sort of sense our way through. Now, I didn't start my business in 84. Maybe I became legal in 84. I started my business when I was in the 70s, basically. And what I did is I started illustrating drawing for the Cornell Sun. I can sketch anything. So that generated a little bit of money. And then from there, I came to New York with like $50, $80 in my pocket. But I knew one thing, I could draw. So I used to draw for Kodak, cameras. So I used to do all their perspective sketches. So that was my anchor to start my office. And then from there, it just grew little by little. And at the same time, there was the sculpture that I used to love. So I got a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council of the Arts when I was at Cornell. And then I did a piece that was well received. And then I went and I met Naina in Central Park when I represented India in the William, William de Kooning show, where I did a sky sculpture. So that was, again, took me to another level. And at that sky sculpture, what I did is I got my green card, actually, through this, through a little grant, not through a grant, through a category in the immigration of talented people. It's called the genius category. So I got my green card through that category on sculpture. How I did survive as in a small business was that this drawing turned out to be, I got my first restaurant, then I got a little bit, then I got somebody else's job. And then I was always helping me. She was part of my life. Yeah. I met her after the William de Kooning show. So then what happened is... It's I like was a, interviewing. She was interviewing me for a newspaper. So then, like all small businesses, people have a projection. I had no projection. We just did what we did in New York City, not realizing if there's a recession or there's not a recession. So we were a small little two people. The two people grew to 10 people. It never grew beyond 10. And then as soon as I got other, and I also had always had an office in Bombay in a small way. And then I got McKinsey, which we were with McKinsey for 15, 17, 18 years. And then finally I said, what am I doing all this for? I'm doing other people's dreams in life. I got to do my own dream. And that's when I decided that people were responding to my sculpture. And it's very interesting how, looking back at it now, it all grew, grew little by step by step by step. So the architecture led to, all architects believe in stone and the love of stone. So it led to stone. Me being an architect and designer, I love stone. So it left to stone. And then that stone led to a process of weights and balances, which is an old Roman architecture, which is an old Indian architecture, which goes back to the Stonehenge, where all the igloo, where one piece of weight is placed on another. And that opened up my whole world because the art market changed all of a sudden. And there was the modern art is looking for, contemporary art is looking for a new waves. And this was like a little ripple. And I said, let me go with that ripple. And that's become a wave now in my life. Yeah, yeah what I realize, and I'm similar, Tarek, you do everything by feel. You have an instinct, you have a feel as an artist, a designer, and then 
Nana comes in from the business size to save your bacon, basically, and get that ca cash flow going and make sure that business side is taken care of. And that's why you guys have a terrific partnership. Again, for our listeners, speaking of the partnership, today we have the pleasure of having Tariq and Nana Karimboy of Karimboy Design with us today on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. We're so pleased to have them. Uh, let me ask you guys a question. So these things I can understand, like you do design and now there's a supplement in stone and sculpture. But then here comes where I found out you invested in a restaurant that you had helped design. And tell me about these things, because I'm sure some of our listeners have that temptation to go outside of their zone and they're sucked in to say, hey, hey, you made this restaurant. Why don't you invest in it? We serve great food. Nana, Tell me a little bit about that and the challenges of that and the desire. So we designed this restaurant, which is a Michelin star restaurant in New York. Tariq designed it. He was very proud of his design. There's a lot of stonework on it and it looked great. We were sucked into the whole optimism of that moment. And uh, the owner, you know, was running out of money, I guess. And he kind of made a concerted effort to, you know, get Tariq to invest in it. And Tariq believed in it because he believed in the design. The food was also good. And I have to say against, for the record, that it was against my wishes that he decided to buy a hard-earned money, not even part of our fee, because it was already over the job, into the restaurant and yeah, that has been, you know, the other thing we've invested in is real estate, which is fair enough. But my advice to small business owners is do not go into areas that where your investment is a small part of the whole and you can't control it. Well, I'll tell you what our mistake was, actually. Yeah? Now, I designed it. I love the design of it. And the guy said to me, huh? you know something? You're in a dead field in terms of design and architecture. You make, you make pennies. You make like little quarters. I can turn it into... Millions for you. Yeah. I said, wow. Okay, I put my daughter's education fund into it. Yeah. I said, wow, it'll double, triple. Should my daughter could go from getting a BA to an MA to getting a doctorate. Only to realize that he was wrong and I was at my cost. I had no idea. Nana, let me ask you a question. In writing a book, when you first think about it, is it first come to your mind to write it in terms of the pleasure you're going to get for it? Uh, do you also look at it and say, do you think I can get a return of investment on it? I mean, what's the business side of writing a book? Or is it most people that write a book write it just for pleasure and for their legacy or whatever? That's a good question. Uh, so the nonfiction books I've written, which have been, I think, three, were all written on con consigned to me, assigned to me. So that I knew how much I was getting and it was a fair amount, wasn't great, but it was a fair amount for the time taken in writing those books because there's a certain body of knowledge and you, you explore it and you write. Uh, so, but fiction is another level altogether. So fiction, the pyramid is very steep. It's like sculpture, right? It's very hard to reach a level where you make a return for the amount of time you spend on it. And I was lucky my book was bought. I did get a fair amount of money, but if it took me five years to write, if I'm quantitatively say per hour payment, it was, it's nothing. Plus it's such a risk. Nobody knows in terms of fiction, if it will be a bestseller, it will do well. You don't know. So yes, it's a labor of love mostly. The hope is, of course, always there that it might become a bestseller and you might become, 
you know. Well, how does it work? Do you get just a fixed amount? We're not talking the numbers itself, but just the format of it. Do you get a fixed amount or there's a return based on the number of copies as well sold? So it's both. So it's uh, the way it goes is supposing they say, all right, we'll give you just say uh, $30,000 as an advance against royalties. Now that 30000 you don't give back, even if your book sells zero. However, once that 30,000 or whatever it is that is deemed, they judge on the basis of their research, once that 30,000 is finished in terms of royalties, then you get more. So when they say advance against royalties, I mean, you get $1 for every book. So if you get $30,000 advance, you better sell 30,000 books. And then after that, everything you sell, you'll get a dollar. Is that generally the formula, about a dollar a book? Yes. I mean, I think that there may be other authors who sell vast numbers. I mean, I am sure the big, big guys who are always on the bestseller lists have a different arrangement. I mean, they probably own part of it. I have no idea. But for the regular writer, author, that is the form. Tarek, for you, tell me the concept around these sculptures. I was on karimboy.net just before we started the podcast, and I saw that 18-foot sculpture. That thing is amazing. Tell me about that and just that design, because I happen to be looking at one right here during the podcast that I got the pleasure of getting from you guys, and this thing is amazing. Tell me about that uh, sculpture. Well, the website is not Karimboy. It's tarikkarimboy.com. That's the sculpture website. That's the sculpture website. So it is, that's a very, it's a very interesting story. What happened is uh, I met Nitin Noria, who's the dean of Harvard Business School, uh, through Indra Nuri. Uh, Indra Nuri's uh, niece, her apartment I designed. Yeah. So I was invited to the wedding. At that time, uh, through Ajit Jain, I met Nitin Noria. And Nitin Noria told me he just got a grant for a sculpture. And when I told him my interest was in weights and balances, he said, oh, I'd love to see your work. So he said, come by to Harvard. So I went by to Harvard. At that time, I was interested in, in this twist. It's called a twist. And um, i just done it for this friend, this hedge fund in New York City called Javeri Capital, who had started a, a school in near Palanpur in the town of Gar for children, for boys and girls. And um, I donated the design to them and they commissioned it at 20 feet with a, with a plinth of three feet. So it made it 23 feet. That's like a, a two-story building. So in essence, that piece I showed to Nitin Noria. So he was very excited. And he said, listen, I want to be similar, but I want it to be 18 feet tall and in stainless steel. So what happened is I got very excited. So that flame grew into a stainless steel piece. But then when I went to present it to him, he said, listen, you have my vote. Now I have to go to the art school, I have to go to the architecture school, and they have to endorse it too. Sadly, the others didn't endorse it because they felt I wasn't known enough. They said they'd rather have a Picasso than have a Tariq Karamboy. So I said, that's life. However, I made it into a six-footer. And at Art Basel in Miami, it got sold to Penske, Penske of uh, Penske Trucking of Indy 500. And then it's an edition of four. The next one got sold to Adelman of the Republican Party. The Trump's guy, biggest Trump, supporter. He came and bought it in a few minutes. He bought two of my sculptures. So then what happened is Sotheby's approached me and Sotheby's are giants. They said, listen, we want to show your work next to an Anish Kapoor. So I said, listen, Anish Kapoor sells for millions. Yeah, I'm struggling to sell for 100,000. Now the interesting thing is that piece, I made it spin, you know, horizontally. 
I made it spin. So the twist, you can appreciate it from different sides if you want it. Yeah. Sadly, the show closed down in 14 days because of the coronavirus in New York. It happened right now, yeah. But it's taken on its own life. And I, I must say that a small version of it at about 18 inches, I donated to the, uh, to the Blind Society of America as a little gift under Sana's name. So it, it's, uh, it's, we call it the flame now. The one, the big one, we called it Tarana, which is Sana's middle name, my daughter's middle name. Yeah, that Tarana one is amazing. I was just looking at that on the website. That is something else. You guys should all check it out that are joining us today on Small Business Horsepower. We're starting to run out of time, but I want to ask you each a question. I'll start with you, Nana. What's the hardest thing that you guys have faced as small business owners? And then on the other side, what's the most rewarding aspect of it? If you had to pick one aspect, the hardest part, and one aspect, the most rewarding part, tell me about that. The hardest part is that, in fact, uh, architecture and design, for example, is a luxury-driven field, right? So in times of recession, you're really the first to be cut. I don't mean the corona recession because that has another angle altogether where people want to do the homes and we are actually doing really really well because people have decided home is the castle kind of thing. So everybody wants deep designs, additions, whatever. However, in the 2008 recession or the 2000, every time a recession comes, we hit rock bottom. And in some ways, having Sana Stone, having, you know, the uh, sculpture, as well as having my project management firm have helped us because you diversify. So if one thing doesn't earn money, sometimes another one might. So that is one thing. And the most rewarding part, of course, is that you are in a very difficult field in a difficult city so that when you do it and you see your work there's a very high degree of satisfaction and for you Tarek what's the I'll ask you the same question the most challenging and then the most rewarding part for your career and business well I would go back actually in terms of my education and I would say that listen having a small business owner you've got to be well educated now I'm I'm fortunate to have three degrees here and I'm fortunate to have current running through all the same education which is based on form and space and the thing is once you are well educated then you can diversify the diversity is really still keeping the same vocabulary but expanding it in various voices through various forms. Okay, I say, okay, architecture is one, design is then, sculpture is the third. Now, like Nena so well put it, you know, diversity really helps because what happens is when you're caught on one, you spring to the other. When you're caught on the other, you spring to the third. And then Nena has a business called Karimboy Cassidy, which was like a lifesaver during the recession time. However, being a small business, we always survive. We paid our guys, we paid their help, and we held on to whatever we had. Through the corona. So, We've been able we even went so far as to sell our prized possessions of art. We sold art to pay our guys. So we kept it on because we felt that without them, we wouldn't be able to spring back. However, like the Phoenix, we always sprung back. This is the first time we've sprung back the strongest of all, actually. But the recessions were hard on us, the two earlier recessions. Very tough. In terms of the small business, actually, we don't value ourselves against the ruler of money against the yardstick of money. Yes, we, our success is really our own yardstick of success. So in essence, uh, we establish our own success stories, yeah. regardless of what the market says, yeah. regardless of who buys, who doesn't buy, who commissions, who doesn't commission. So we're like a little wind-up machine. When you wind it up, we're like a little, it bounces, 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 wind it up. 
It's like a yo-yo. But the thing is that yo-yo was controlled by the hand. It's controlled by each of us. And I feel our destiny is our love, our passion. And that's what guides us through the whole situation. If it makes money, it makes money. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. It matters. Well, that is, uh, I'll tell you, you guys have done a fantastic job, both in your individual careers, as an author for you, Nana, and as a architectural design, Tharik, and then together you have created something that is amazing for small business horsepower. And with that, we really want to thank you today for being on our podcast. Uh, you two are very passionate, and I, that's why I really wanted you guys to be on this podcast on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. And I want to thank you guys one more time for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure for us. Thank, thank you. you Thank you, Mil. Thanks for having us.